0: This is the beginning of a series of talks about the five hindrances. In a retreat such as this, we give ourselves a precious opportunity to discover this precious human body, this precious heart, this precious mind, the way things are, the nature of reality. Not theoretically, not through ideas, concepts, opinions, not through reading about it but through the practice of mindful awareness, through this practice of bare attention to our moment-to- moment experience. And it's through this practice of bare attention that we go through ever-deepening levels of the body and the mind in a very direct experiential, elemental, preconceptual way. And we discover for ourselves how it is, not what anybody else wrote about or described about. And we begin to answer the questions for ourselves. The question of what is the nature of this human being, of this being human? What is the nature of this precious birth? So that in the awakening to that, we can align ourselves with ever-deepening understanding. We can align ourselves with the truth. And perhaps through that, we can realize our true potential as human beings. So there comes a time for each one of us that we begin to heed the Buddha's words when he said, come and see for yourself, ehi pasiko. And so this is what we're doing here now. On our unique spiritual journeys that each one of us has, different from one another, unique to who we are as individuals, we come to know and experience the truth through many teachings, through many teachers, books, places that may inspire us, our hearts may open, our minds may open through that. And we come to see perhaps how true and how uh, we feel so deeply that It's time to see for ourselves. There's that old Zen saying, gazing at the moon, we lose the pearl in our own hands. And so we're no longer willing to do that. We're no longer willing to gaze or to look somewhere else away from ourselves. But we're now willing to look into our own hearts, to look into our own hands what we hold in our own lives. Scientists are now saying that each one of us is like a living hologram of the entire universe. And uh, it's interesting that more than 2500 years ago, the Buddha said something similar to that. He said, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the universe can be discovered in this fathom long body so here we are in this practice in the midst of that discovery and it's helpful to have that perspective on our practice and not just that perspective but perhaps even that intention that we are here to discover what this is all about to allow ourselves to open whatever unfolds itself in our practice so that maybe in the unfolding of those places that have been long hidden or maybe not so long hidden but uh, maybe in the past we weren't so willing to take a good look at it but now maybe we're able to see with a deeper honesty a clearer honesty what this is all about, what this opening, this awakening is all about. And we can come to it with an AHA instead of an oh no, (laughs) how am I going to do this? Instead of closing down in ignorance, maybe we can awaken. So it's usually by this time of the retreat that the usual layers of distractions and the usual habit patterns are not so magnetically pulling us. Maybe their magnetic force has weakened a bit and other layers may begin to unravel and unfold and maybe seem more intense. And at this time of the retreat, we usually have an onslaught of various kinds of what we call visitors to the mind. (laughs) Uh, These visitors are either knocking very rudely or seductively at the door of our experience, at the door of our hearts, minds, and bodies. These visitors are categorized as the five hindrances which are the first one being sloth and torpor, the second one being doubt, the third is aversion, the fourth is restlessness, and the fifth is desire or attachment. So during uh, this next week or so, I'd like to go over all of those individually. When this happens, when these visitors come knocking at our door, we begin to think. Uh, some of us may begin to think that, oh, our practice is going downhill. It's not supposed to be like this. It's supposed to be calm. It's supposed to be, you know, open and spacious. And this is not supposed to be happening. You know, this. I did this already. <laughs> Uh, but actually, what's happening is because the quality of mindfulness is being strengthened in our practice, and also because we're less distracted, because the, the power of concentration is being also cultivated, this practice begins to function like an electron microscope where we begin to see whatever is happening in our moment-to-moment experience in a very powerfully magnified way. The present moment is very magnified. And so it's through this magnifying lens of mindful awareness that we experience more intimately and clearly what's going on. The facets of being human that we begin to see are very difficult to face, very challenging, overwhelming. They are called hindrances because, and this is really an important qualification, they're called hindrances because when we are not mindful of them, they hinder our ability to experience life clearly, to experience life wisely. So they're only hindrances when we're not mindful of them, because they hinder our ability to experience life clearly, wisely. However, when mindful awareness is present with these hindrances, we begin to recognize more clearly their unfolding, how the mind works, the ecology of the mind and the heart, the terrain, And we get to be, through that familiarity, we get to be more courageous, more honest with how things are. And it's from that clarity and from that truthfulness that we begin to correct the distortions of how we had been seeing life. The Buddha said, The mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces, known as defilements, that we suffer. And sometimes these hindrances are known as defilements. So our practice here has a lot to do with opening to all of those hindrances and bringing mindful awareness right there so we can correct the distortions so we can see clearly what leads to happiness, what leads to unhappiness and suffering, and so that we can cultivate those wholesome qualities of mind and we can see more deeply and clearly the true nature of the unwholesome qualities of mind and let them go. When these forces begin to open to unfold, to be more exposed, it really takes a courageous effort to be with them, to bring mindfulness to them, moment to moment, and to make them conscious. So a lot of what we're doing here in the practice is making (coughs) the unconscious conscious. If that doesn't happen, those places where we're folded in upon ourselves, those places that we're not so conscious of, they tend to control our lives. We tend to act out, act them out unwisely. Their habit patterns take over. And this is what leads to great unhappiness in our lives. But mindfulness. Mindful awareness begins to illuminate everything when we bring this quality of attention to our moment-to-moment experience. And nothing can hide from it. Nothing can hide from it. Everything begins to get exposed. The beautiful qualities of the mind and the heart, if we can truly recognize them, They're not so easy to recognize because usually they're very subtle, refined, and porous. But in any case, those begin to get more uh, recognized. But also, those places that have been folded in, closed in, in darkness, they begin to get opened and exposed. And perhaps also because there is this developing, uh, the simultaneous development of the wholesome qualities of mind that are able to be present or nearby as those dark places are unfolded. Recently, uh, or last year, at the end of last year, I took a period of time to do some practice for myself at uh, the Insight Meditation society in berry massachusetts and i took the first 6 weeks to practice and the next 6 weeks i was teaching so i began the practice time with the usual sloth and torpor you know and the various hindrances impatience aversion resistance sadness guilt i mean you you when i hear it from you it's so familiar <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not above it all, believe me. <laughs> so, um, working with these places, and also the very subtle places, the refined places, those very pleasant places of the mind and heart that one can get subtly attached to, those began to, that, those kinds of attachments, began to get exposed also. So, I just had the full range of experiences Generally, it, it felt like, you know, just working with everything on a pretty even keel. Sometimes there were uh, peaks and sometimes there were valleys, and it, it was generally all right. And kept going along, and a little more into about a month of the retreat. I woke up one morning. The previous day and previous days had been the usual dukkha you know, the usual pain and suffering and uh, the letting go of it and, you know, the highs and lows, and woke up on October 25th, which is my youngest daughter's 18th birthday, and woke up that morning remembering it. And the first thought that came was, um, this is her birthday and I'm not here for it. You know, so you can imagine what that... It was just like a, a wedge that opened up a lot. This daughter, who was 18, is the last of four children, and she was the last one out of the nest. In the previous June, she had graduated from high school, and that June, she had left the house also. So I felt like I was grieving this for a while already and thought that I had been there, done that, that was it, you know, and felt that, you know, there was just maybe some ripples left. But lo and behold, being a mother, which is, you know, the role that I'm most identified with, being a mother for 30 years, and we know that the places where we're most identified were most solidified around. And so, when that begins to break up, when, that, when seeing the moment-to-moment painful nature of that solidification begins to break up, it's very, very, very painful because it's held so tightly together. And so, when that began to break up, it was really painful it wedged open feelings of guilt and sadness and not just my relationship with her but of all the children and of course I never had a moment of thinking what I did okay but it was everything of where I went wrong as a mother and where I failed and at inadequacy and all of that it just was overwhelming not only in my relationship as mother to the children, but also indirectly as a daughter mm. to my own mother. So, in going through that, there was a long period of days of, you know, just overwhelming, uh, drowning in, oh no, I can't face this. It's just really hard. And just the continuity of the practice got me through. You know, the a kindness to myself, compassionate attention got me through that. And I'll speak about that at, on another talk. But through the compassionate awareness of that opening and realizing as those places were exposed or re-exposed, and maybe, you know, opening and recognizing that pain again, cognizing it over again, recognizing it in a way where I could give it a kind of attention that wasn't trying to fix anything or figure it out or do anything about it or uh, improve it, but where I could be with it without interpreting it so I could open to those exposed places with a kind of recognition without interpretation, which is really difficult to do because we tend to spin out in thought about it. And so just allowing the light of mindfulness to be with it in a different way, in a cognizing way, so that the, the light of mindfulness can have its healing power upon it. So without avoiding it, without resisting it, I could feel more honesty with it. Even opening to it, in a way, felt more whole because I wasn't uh, pushing it away. I didn't feel split, like there was something about myself that I wasn't honest about. I could feel actually quite whole and began to just let myself experience the pain of it. And it was like, um, it, was, it was painful, but very purifying. This is from Rilke's Book of Hours, Love Poems to God. I love the way this is expressed, um, translated by two women. Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy. I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed, for where I am closed, I am false." And so if we can have that kind of perspective, that kind of way of facing the hindrances, if we can remember that places are unfolding that need to be touched, recognized, with that kind of uh, light that dispels the darkness, the light of mindfulness, with that kind of compassionate attention that says, this is how life is, and it can be healed. So when we know how to work, with all of these hindrances skillfully. These hindrances can actually be used as an opportunity to awaken. They don't have to close us down. So one of the things that we learn to do in our practice, apart from recognizing what's happening, is to reframe our understanding of what's going on. Sometimes we say, oh no, and we close down, but we can say, aha, this is the very place to place our attention. This is the very place where awakening can happen. Not, oh no, I'm not supposed to have this, but yes, we can open to this. Actually, in the Buddha's teaching, and the Buddha spoke about the four foundations of mindfulness, the four being body, being the first sensations in the body, feelings being the second. The third is mental states or consciousness sometimes. And the fourth, uh, Manindra used to say they're all dhammas, and I used to wonder about that. It wasn't very specific or very descriptive, but actually, in the fourth foundation, it a lot of the fourth foundation of mindfulness includes the other three. So, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the fifth, uh, the five hindrances are specifically mentioned. So, some of in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, what's specifically mentioned are all the states of mind to develop, to cultivate, that lead to happiness, that lead to freedom. For example, the seven factors of enlightenment. And all, to be mindful of all the unskillful states of mind to transform. And one of them specifically mentioned, one grouping is the five hindrances. So these five hindrances are specifically mentioned in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Just wanted to point that out as a way of seeing that that reframing is part of what the Buddha taught. That this is the very place to put our attention to bring mindfulness. The um, shaman of Carlos Castaneda, Don Juan, talked about the spiritual life in this way. Ordinary people experience life as a series of blessings and curses, but a spiritual warrior sees all of life as an opportunity to awaken. So it's through this power of awareness or mindfulness that we awaken to the truth of life, to how things are. And we can't do that if we're always running away from them, if we're always feeling like this isn't the place to be, or I don't yet have enough courage or energy. When we don't even try. So it's through this reframing that we learn to understand how to work with them so that they can serve as a condition for our awakening rather than as a condition for our continued delusion, continued ignorance. So basically that's a way of um, reframing how to work with the hindrances and attitudes that we can take towards working with them, attitudes of compassion, of courage, of honesty, of really an intention of opening and a willingness to allow ourselves to experience that opening truthfully. Not just opening to what's beautiful and pleasant, but also to the unpleasant, to the unbeautiful, to the painful, which is part of being human. So the first of these hindrances is sloth and torpor. And uh, there's two, two different descriptions, uh, tina and mida. Sloth is the first, tina, and torpor. Mida is the second. And I looked these up in the Abhidhamma and the Buddhist psychology because they gave really, it gave really descriptive um, words of how they are actually uh, subjectively experienced. So I thought it was uh, very helpful. And first I wanted to mention that it wasn't too long ago that I saw on a nature program a program about a sloth. You know, uh, and it was interesting. The sloth Sleeps 20 hours a day <laughs> and so um, it can even sleep when it's hanging upside down you know on its tail and it's easy it, it's quite easy to appear that we're sitting and we're sleeping and we can do that also in our own way <laughs> so the first uh, <laughs> The first uh, thing that we can do with, the, with all of these hindrances is to recognize its presence. This is really challenging to do with sloth and torpor, with sleepiness, with sluggishness, because we, we think when it's, you know it comes that it's time to go to sleep. And especially when we're in a retreat such as this, You know, usually in life, when it's quiet and it's still, those are signals for us to go to sleep. And so in the hall, it's quiet and it's still. And when sloth and torpor arrives, usually those are signals for us just to follow it. So the first thing to do is to recognize its appearance, to recognize how it feels to feel sleepy to feel sloth. So these are the ways that sloth has been described. And you might actually feel this in the body. It's described as sluggishness, sometimes rigidity, sometimes unwieldiness of the body. Um, It feels sometimes like fogginess, dullness. These are some things that you might begin to get familiar with before they totally take over you know before they get very strong so we we usually don't recognize sleepiness until we're well in it if you can begin to recognize the characteristics of sleepiness you're more likely to catch it before it totally takes over so notice when you start to get sleepy it it might be just even in the middle of the sleepiness. You begin to notice what's all its characteristics. And it's a great place to do that, you know, to to be in the middle of sleepiness and to have the intention, I will be mindful of this sleepiness. It's amazing that we don't think of that right away because we're so sleepy. You know, we just let it take over and it takes like about Two or three sittings before we say, Oh, I can be mindful of this. So, as soon as you can catch it, begin to notice the characteristics that sleepiness is um, showing, how it's showing up in your practice. It might be, uh, you know, that it shows up as more of a torpor, a drowsiness, a kind of a nodding. You know, where the body doesn't feel like it has the energy to keep it upright, um, an inertness, an inactivity. These are ways that torpor shows up. There's a story that I read recently in one of the suttas. It's one when um, Mogalana, who is one of the chief, one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha was practicing, and the Buddha was nearby but not in the same room, and Moggallana was practicing in his room or in the hall, I forget where. And the Buddha saw Moggallana with his omniscient eye. So the Buddha got up and went to where Moggallana was practicing, and uh, saw in, with, uh, with his omniscient eye that the Moggallana was, had this sleepiness and so he approached mogalana and said mogalana are you nodding are you nodding when i read this it made me so relieved <laughs> 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 that if mogalana could do it i didn't have to feel so guilty about <laughs> nodding you know you know that meditators uh, sway that we get <laughs> oftentimes at the beginning of the retreat i open my eyes and you know, there's, you know, about half of the room is like, <laughs> it's really, it makes me smile <laughs> to see it. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's like, um <laughs> it's this gentle wave <laughs> out there, you know. <laughs> and so uh, then Mogalana said, Yes, Venerable Sir, I am nodding, I am nodding. So, the first thing to do is to recognize and to admit, you know, I am sleepy, I'm actually sleepy, I'm nodding. And to really, to use that, to use that, even that, that uh, action of the body. Use it as a place to be mindful. At this um, time when I was practicing at IMS, I arrived there, I was totally exhausted. From traveling to get there, arranging everything to get there, we had uh, just been assigned some new quarters and uh, and I was going to leave Steve in those new quarters for six weeks and so I had to of course, you know make it homey, so I was really busy doing my favorite mindful thing shopping <laughs> and uh <laughs> getting it all ready, and so I I got to the place of where I could actually practice, and um, I I found a place in the hall, I kind of sat on the woman's woman's side, and in the middle, you know, of of that place, a place where I could kind of hopefully be inconspicuous, but sat in the middle, and um, I was so tired that, you know, I could hardly hold my head up. And and uh, my whole body felt like it was just sinking down. It was it wasn't actually feeling that way. I looked and it was. You know, I would <laughs> I would I would just catch myself like this, and so I'd mindfully come up, and then finally I got to the point where I could keep the body up, but the the head kept going like this. <laughs> it just kept going like that over and over again. And I thought of a, a friend I have who's. Vietnamese actually, and she has this really interesting way of being very direct and using just the right words. And so she talked about a time when she was uh, practicing at IMS and there was something going on and she thought she wasn't going to be a very good example. And she said, oh, bad advertisement for the Dhamma, bad advertisement (laughs) for the Dhamma and so i i was sitting there thinking i those words came to me oh bad advertisement for the dhamma and i thought i'm in the middle of all these yogis and i'm going to teach the second half and they thi- they're probably going to think there she is she can't even sit right you know so i i, I just felt like oh that that really you know it, it, it I didn't feel felt ashamed, a little guilty, of course, all of that. But that wasn't so bad. That was part of the practice. I thought, oh, I, I, this this will ruin the faith of the yogis. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to go someplace else. I have to sit. So I went to the back. There was a chair in the back. And I sat in the back of the chair and I thought, maybe if I sat against the seat I could hold myself up more. <laughs> I had all these thoughts of tying myself and you know, putting something there and all you know, all the thoughts that I know you go through, you know, how you were how you're gonna do it. So I I just thought every way I could fix it. I sat in the back, you know, and just then, I, it made me more sleepy, I just kept, and then I had the thought, oh no, the bell had rung once, and everybody was getting out, <laughs> and I was just raising my head, and I thought, oh my God, all these people are seeing me, I was not, I just, you know, they're walking out, now everybody's seeing me. <laughs> so, I, so then, it was, you know, all of a sudden it came to me like, duh, Maybe I can be mindful of this, <laughs> right? So, first thing is to recognize what's going on. So what was the, more, the most predominant thing that was going on? It was the nodding. It was the nodding. So maybe I could be mindful of the head, like going boom. Well. So I took the nodding as the object of practice and recognizing what was going on so it was like instead of oh no it was like aha I could use that mm-hmm. as the place of recognition so just making the intention to recognize what was going on the moment as, as soon as I could at the very beginning so it was all of a sudden everything settled down in my practice and I could all of the stray thoughts of trying to fix it up etc and I felt like Oh, it was so easy. I could take that one movement as the practice. So it was really kind of playful to do. So I, I made the intention. Okay, as soon as the head begins to fall, I'll begin to. I'll get be mindful of it. And so I was really vigilant. Like, okay, this this is going to be fun, you know. So. I sat there, and as soon as the head began to fall, that intention to actually watch it kept me awake. And uh, so I began to see when it would just go boom. And And then the whole practice for, you know, like one sitting was like watching it go down and bringing it up. Watching it go down and bringing it up. And then more and more refinement in it in just watching before it, the moment before it went down, like the intention would arise before it would go down, and just seeing that happen. And it was really awakening, just connecting with that place. It was so awakening. And it's actually said that in terms of, you know, the working with uh, jhanas or absorption practices, that connecting with the object actually um, dispels sloth and torpor. So connecting with the object was what needed to happen. Recognizing. Connecting, recognizing. So could recognize in the movement of the head going down, dullness, heaviness, sometimes lightness sometimes weakness. All of these things that that we don't see so clearly because we don't have that spark of energy there at that moment. We kind of just go with it. So if you can get that spark of energy there, it's really awakening. And the moment of awakening, like you can awaken in the moment of dullness. And you're not then so much feeling lost and like, oh no, what am I doing wrong? You're feeling like very confident in that moment. Your, your practice begins to shift. There was a woman at the last, one of the last retreats that we taught at um, Cloud Mountain whose main hindrance for many years was sloth and torpor. And I gave this talk kind of the second day of the retreat i gave the talk and the whole talk was pretty much on sloth and torpor so she decided to use everything that arises with sloth and torpor as her whole practice for that whole retreat to make the intention to do that and she at the end of the retreat she felt so confident and empowered with her practice and it it just kind of um, that intention to see into that spilled over into every aspect of her practice it can be really powerful to use this place where we're most deluded one of the most deluded places in our practices and bring the energy and light of mindfulness there so I want to spend more time on this since we're being here a month and we can spend time on each of the hindrances. There's usually three causes of sloth and torpor to arise. And it's helpful to know this because then when we know this we we sort of put it in the right category for ourselves and we don't sometimes feel so bad about it. The first one, the first cause Is basically when we haven't gotten enough sleep and a lot of times this is when we first get to the retreat and you know the the pressures of life uh, to get here make us tired and when we get here it's like we've been going at a hundred miles an hour this great big freight train with all of our baggage and we get here and we're stopping on a dime and, you know, we just fall all over ourselves, and it's really, really difficult to keep awake. So that's the the first cause of sleepiness or sloth and torpor. The second is resistance to the unpleasant. Resistance to what we're opening to that we don't want to open to, or maybe we're not ready to open to. It's tiring. Resistance is tiring. We resist in many ways. You know, we see, we we open to some kind of dukkha, pain in the body, pain in the mind, and, oh, we just can't take it. And we, we run away in many ways. We run off into fantasy, which is really tiring. It's debilitating into thinking about things, into figuring it out. It's very taking of the energy. Uh, we, We don't do the practice, we run away from it by not doing the practice and when we're not mindful, we get more tired. We distract ourselves. And then we come in and do the practice and we find, because we have been distracting ourselves and not doing, being with the continuity of the practice, it feels like every time we get back into the hall, we're starting all over again. Because we just, we haven't kept the continuity of the practice. So those are different ways that we resist the opening. If we could just let ourselves feel it, you know, it's less tiring. So uh, it withers the mind when we resist what's happening. We we you know we resist, we get restless, and then that restlessness causes sloth and torpor and it's a vicious cycle. We're either restless or tired, restless or tired. So if something like this is happening, there's something that we're resisting in our practice that might need to be opened up to, or we might need to do some other practices first to gain the strength to open up to those places that we might be resisting, and don't yet feel the safety or the strength to open to them so we might need to do (coughs) some balancing practices (coughs) like compassion or metta the third cause of uh, that kind of sloth and torpor is an imbalance of energy and concentration and it's not so much sloth and torpor but more what we call sinking mind and this may come up for some of you that are um, are used to being with your practice or uh, easily slip into deep places, and um, or it may happen later on in the practice, for those of you who are new to the practice or relatively new, and that's when you feel really, really clear about what's going on. You're, you're feeling like you're very clear, there's a stillness in the mind, there's a clarity, There's a one-pointedness. There's a connecting with what's going on. And there's a kind of um, focusing in on what's happening. And the focus gets so, so pointed, pointed, pointed. And the mind isn't open enough to keep a kind of energetic quality. So it gets so still and focused. And it's clear and still and focused. And then before we know it, we're gone. We're out and we don't know what happened. It's like we're out of it, we went someplace else. And that's not sleepiness. That's more an imbalance between energy and concentration. And so there are different practices that we do with that to help regain the balance in in the practice. And when you talk about your practice, we might recognize what's going on uh, that you may not be recognized, recognizing because sometimes when you're in the midst of it you're not recognizing what's going on it's something that some from someone from the outside can see more clearly so might give you some practices to deal with that so when when these are happening you know when we haven't gotten enough sleep or resistance to the unpleasant and etc we can work with all of those things and we can reframe our understanding about them, that this is the very place to do our practice. Sometimes we may feel like we need to act it out, you know, and sometimes that may be the skillful thing to do. Like when we first get here and we're so tired and maybe we need an extra nap, and that's okay. But sometimes when we're deeper in the practice, that might not be the most skillful thing to do so restraining ourselves from acting it out and and having the intention to work with it first and foremost with mindfulness noticing you know the characteristics of that so first working with it with mindfulness and then if it if it's so overpowering you might have some antidotes that you could use with the sloth and torpor. One of the easiest antidotes to sloth and torpor is something that we can do just in our, here in the hall, is just to open your eyes and look at a light. You know, in the evening when we get really tired, a lot of times when I'm really tired I open my eyes and if I'm near a light, you know, just look down at the floor. Or if I'm far from a light, I'll look out at the light. And just that energy coming into the mind awakens the mind a little more to stay more alert. Another thing we can do is sit up straight. If you're sitting in a chair, you might uh, not lean on the chair, but sit more forward on the chair so you're not leaning back. And take a long, quiet breath. Quiet breath. And uh, just let oxygen into the body. Sometimes just a little oxygen will help. Pulling the ears will could help. I found out from a friend who's an acupuncturist that that does have some physiological effect on the body. I can't explain it, but he, he, it made sense when he talked about it. So pulling the ears would help. Uh, being mindful of having an intention of being mindful of one entire breath and noting it you know noting more in 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 out 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 like that that the energy that it takes to note may bring just the right energy to awaken the mind and it might not be very much recollecting our death and how precious this time is. You know, The might not be able to practice again, so to use this time wisely so that we don't give in to the sleep. Standing up. A lot of times uh, in in our retreats, oftentimes people stand up, and we haven't yet had one person fall over. So uh, (laughs) rest assured, you have when you stand up there's a kind of alertness that isn't there when you, you know, compared to when you sit down. So these are all the ways that we can work with sloth and torpor and uh, using it as actually as practice. First being mindful of all of its characteristics, all of the ways that it manifests, And then using the antidotes, you know, you might try what works best for you. And most of all, bringing a kind of reframing to it that is gentle with ourselves. You know, in all of these ways that we work with it, whether we're recognizing what's happening, we're reframing we're reframing from acting it out re- reframing from acting it out or re- we are reframing our understanding of it in all of these ways if we can just bring a kindness, a compassionate attention to how we do to what we do it always works a lot better than being harsh with ourselves about it I'd like to end with a part of this um, poem by Rumi. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight, the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them all at the door. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So let's sit for a moment and let the words dissolve.